Hello and welcome to the Phenomena podcast. I'm Elliot Salandi Brown, a partner at Red Associates, and in this episode we'll be exploring the topic of algorithms, something we see companies from all sectors increasingly deploying in their businesses. In particular, we'll be talking about how to get them right for users, for people, and how they could potentially be doing more for businesses and customers with a deeper understanding of behavior and culture. To dive into this topic, I'm joined by Maria Curry and Brendan Muha, both partners at Red Associates, today from our New York office. Hi, Maria and Brendan. Hello. Hey, Elliot. Hi there. Now, you two have been deep inside these technology companies for many years now, helping them create strategies based on an understanding of people. And in a moment, we'll go on to talk about algorithms specifically. But first, Brendan, could you give us a sense of what kind of work you've been doing with these technology companies? What kind of problems you've been helping them solve? Yeah, so a lot of my work has to do with helping companies identify opportunities for, for new products and services, help them make sense of how culture is changing and what that might mean for you know their product roadmap, what that means for the kind of things they should be building for the next few years. A lot of my work also has to do with adoption, so ensuring that what they're building and developing is really you know, set up to be adopted at scale by a lot of people. And then also dealing with the downsides of some of that adoption, looking at spread of misinformation, you know, overconsumption, that sort of stuff. Maria, anything to add? Um, yeah, I think it's pretty similar to what Brendan described. A lot of it has to do with how do you make technology more relevant to people so that it goes beyond just being momentarily delightful or ideally goes past being annoying and is actually something that's meaningful and helpful and relevant to people in the day to day. Maria, can I ask, as a fellow social scientist, what's it like for you working with the people you find in these tech companies? It's really interesting. It brings together people with a lot of different skill sets into one room, ideally, when we're working with them. Oftentimes, you have designers, and you have engineers, and you have researchers and strategists, and they might be working in silos, and they don't get to talk to one another very often. So when we come into the picture and have a project that kind of has an underlying phenomenological question uh, that's relevant for all those different teams, it's when they can really be in the same room and have an interesting discussion. Thanks, Maria. As we look across the companies that we work with, it seems that virtually all of them are trying to make algorithms work for their businesses, whether they're from finance or pharma or fashion. So a big basic question, what are they using algorithms for? What kind of business benefits are they trying to derive from this new technology? I mean, the thing is that algorithms are all around us. So they can determine what temperature a building is set to so that it saves on costs, but also keeps people comfortable. They can try to predict fraud on our credit cards. They can help businesses essentially make better predictions that help their bottom line. Brendan, anything to add? 
Yeah, one of the ways that I see companies using algorithms is to personalize.、Um, the idea being that if we can serve people up personalized experiences, personalized content, we'll build loyalty. We will serve them up opportunities to buy things that they're more likely to buy, and we'll demonstrate a relationship getting deeper and deeper over time. So obviously, lots going on in this space. But also, I understand some challenges. Companies struggling, particularly from a user perspective, to get these new technologies right. And so, I imagine some of these are technical. But I also understand that you think some of them are related to how companies think about people. So, let's dive into some of those issues that you see companies having with algorithms and the behavioral or cultural insights that can help explain them. And one topic I'd love to start with. Is an observation you shared with me about the tendency of algorithms to look backwards when most people are trying to look forwards. Please tell us a bit more about that. Sure. So, you know, I think one of the things that algorithms and you know data collection is meant to do is is meant to really understand people, to build up a body of knowledge about them. But you know, when you talk to people and you ask them what what makes them feel understood, it's not knowing a lot about their past behavior. You know, what shows they've watched, what things they've bought. But what makes people feel really known is when people acknowledge their future goals, sort of the person they're trying to become, the way they're trying to evolve and grow. And you know, a, a lot of companies really struggle in that their personalization or their you know recommendation engines are just built entirely on past behavior rather than really kind of looking ahead and trying to understand how people are evolving and who they're trying to become. And so, what's the problem for the user? When faced with a product or a service that is built around looking backwards, how does that not add up to a great experience for them? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of really obvious things where you know I, I was looking for shoes, I, I bought a pair of shoes, but you keep serving me up ads for shoes. That's the sort of superficial thing that gets talked about quite a bit. But I think the reality is people feel like these algorithms, these companies are developing inaccurate pictures of them. They are building, you know, in some ways a a portrait of who this person is that they're trying to move past. People are constantly trying to be better, trying to evolve, trying to work themselves in, into new directions. And I think people feel sometimes these algorithms sort of trap them. They continue to show them who they used to be instead of giving them new possibilities for who they could be. Yeah, I can understand why that wouldn't add up to a great experience for a user. But as I tried to think how a company could take a more forward-looking view, I'm curious about what sort of data might be used for that. What else would they need to collect, or perhaps how might they need to use or process that data differently? Yeah, I think there's an, an assumption that I see a lot of companies using is that you know we just need to collect a lot of data. We need to do this sort of in the background, silently, and then do a lot of really complicated math on that data to try to figure out what people want. I think the reality is people are quite open to shaping what they want and what they get together with companies. They want more opportunities to give input. They they want to be asked questions. They want to you know do something simple sometimes as a thumbs up or thumbs down. But beyond that, answer questions. Be able to share a little bit more. I think companies sometimes get this wrong when they figure they're supposed to figure out everything in the background and just serve it up to people. I think what's really interesting is. When these content recommendation algorithms get it wrong, the way we hear people describe it in our work is similar to how they might describe 
like a bad relationship, right? They'll kind of describe it in terms of, well, you know, it's stuck in the past. It doesn't, it's not helping me be who I want to be. It's not helping me to achieve my goals. I feel like I can't really move on. So it's interesting that people are starting to kind of use just a a more relational language, even as they they talk to us about the experiences they have, um, especially with content that's recommended to them um, online or through like a streaming service that's basically generated by an algorithm that's been learning from past behaviors. Brendan, anything to add? I think there's a lot of interactions that, you know, aren't meant to be intimate where speed and frictionlessness are great. You know, if you're buying something online and you don't want to have to type in your address for the 10th time, that's excellent. But with companies that are trying to build real intimacy and actually convey to customers that they deeply understand them, you know, that requires a little bit of time. It's not something that people want to happen in an instant. I can think of an example, actually. I was working on a project where we built some software for sales reps in the ad industry to instantly create customized ad campaigns for some of their customers. And what we found was that, you know, for something so important for these small businesses trying to build an ad campaign that really was meant to intimately understand who they were and who they were trying to be and who they were trying to get as customers, doing something instantaneous at the click of a button, just it it felt too fast. It felt impossible for these people to believe that they had been really understood by the sales rep, that the sales rep had really thought about their individual situation, taken into account all of their preferences. So we actually had to slow down the process a little bit. We had to say, well, you know, the software can calculate this instantly, but we're going to actually add a bit of delay. The rep's going to have to come back for a second or third visit to, you know, show to that customer that they've actually taken the time to deliberate and and, and think about them. That seems quite counter to a lot of research that you come across around technologies where people seem to start often with the technology and then try to figure out, well, what might it be for? But it looks like you guys are taking uh, the other approach of starting with understanding needs and second, looking at how technology might fulfill those. Is that right? Absolutely. Another thing I'd love to discuss with you guys is how algorithms focus on individuals. And as social scientists, What we increasingly understand is that humans are, of course, incredibly social and that when you take just an individual without understanding their context, their relationships, their conversations, their culture, their society, you often don't get a full picture of who someone is. You often don't get a full picture of what life is really like. And at Red Associates, we're at the moment really pushing companies to be better at understanding the social dimension to things, the cultural dimension to things, rather than just focusing on the user, as perhaps a a discipline like user experience might do. So I'm interested in exploring that a bit as it relates to algorithms. Brendan, I understand that you think algorithms are too concerned with the individual alone. Is that right? Absolutely. And, you know, I think a lot of that goes back to the mechanisms by which data has historically been collected and and attributed. So most companies are using profiles or they're using accounts, and those tend to be linked to a particular email address, which enables me or you or Maria or somebody to, you know, have our behavior stored away under, under a file somewhere. But I think what we see in, you know, particularly streaming services or anything connected, you know, people are experiencing and enjoying this content together, even though it may be, you know, my email address, I'm sitting together with you or I'm sitting with Maria and we're, we're watching it together. And so 
you might have my preferences on file, you might have Maria's preferences on file, but what we enjoy together and the points of commonality between the three of us, it may have you know nothing to do with any of our individual profiles. One example I might give is that I really like documentaries and Maria really likes sci-fi, but when you put us together, is our preference as a, as a social unit just really the average of those two things? Is it documentaries about sci-fi? Maybe not. There might be an, an entirely new third thing. Maybe Maria and I both happen to be interested in in you know movies in Japanese, who knows? But I think companies are sometimes having a hard time thinking about that social unit having preferences that are distinct from either of our individuals or the average of our individual preferences. So what could companies be doing differently to understand that often people are in a social setting, that it's something collective going on that the algorithm should understand? Is it a different kind of data that needs to be collected? Or do they need to process it differently? Or is it more of a mindset shift required to get that right? It's probably all three of those things. It probably starts with when building for these um, interactions with digital products or services, not assuming that there is one person, one individual on the other side of that. Yeah, I think one thing that companies could do is start, you know, moving beyond the the profile or the account tied to an individual. I mean, you could think about moving beyond that by creating profiles for spaces or for times. So these are the kinds of things that are watched in this room, or these are the kind of things that are watched in the evening, with the implicit understanding that those will be social experiences or social spaces. Shifting topics a bit, Brendan, can you tell us about some of the workarounds that you see users of technology turning to in order to offset the weaknesses that they perceive in the way these algorithms are working? Yeah, so in our work, we've seen some pretty interesting examples of people trying to help the algorithm understand them better. So, you know, we've seen people watching the same video about baseball five times or watching 10 different videos about baseball to sort of send the algorithm the message that they're into baseball these days and they want to be served up more of that kind of content. In other cases, we see people, you know, opening new browser windows or creating new profiles to, you know, maybe watch something about politics that they don't want the algorithm to know about because they, they fear it would sort of get fixated on that and keep serving them up political content. In some cases, we see people kind of playing around with this in in a sort of, you know, playful, fun, kind of sparring relationship with the algorithm. And then in other cases, it feels a bit more, you know, menacing and it feels a bit more kind of difficult to escape its presence. That's really helping me understand why social science is increasingly finding a home in what feels like this very technical domain. Am I right in thinking that the companies that are working with algorithms are also realizing that just getting the technology right isn't enough and that there is a role for this more nuanced and detailed human understanding in making those technologies work for people. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's a huge demand for social science in this. And I think the first place to start is at really maybe the very intimate level. I think there's a lot of companies that still don't understand what it means for a consumer, for a customer to feel understood, what it means for them to feel known by a brand or by a company. And I mean, that's a very intimate question, but I think social science and humanities can shed a lot of light on that. You know, it's different based on cultural context. It's different based on a whole lot of factors, not just, you know, a very kind of rational relationship with technology. 
And then I think there's the much more macro or the societal question about what kind of behaviors in society does the mediation by algorithms of our speech, of our you know preferences and stuff start to start to create. So I think a lot about kind of virality. I think about you know spread of conspiracy theories about misinformation, et cetera. I think social scientists are starting to do some work there, but I think there's there's still quite a bit of space. Thanks for that, Maria, Brendan. One last question, which I know you haven't prepared for, but I know both of you work in quite long-term horizons as you think about technology. And I want to know, if you look into the future, let's say five years out, how will this space look different, do you think? How will companies be using algorithms differently? And how will algorithms work differently for people? So if today we see that people, just everyday users, are you know, increasingly aware of and really curious about their own relationship with algorithms. It makes me think, well, is there really a world in which people can truly have productive two-way relationships with content generating algorithms that today are mostly fully in the service of the businesses in which they're built and then what is the the business case for that? And I think part of the business case is that we've seen when these algorithms get people wrong, we see people, um, when they encounter this, basically do things like uh, switch platforms or go on a kind of digital detox and say, I'm, I'm not going online. But the upside to actually providing these better experiences is that you create technologies and services that are actually potentially really valuable and and meaningful to people and stay for the long term. Well, I think in order to understand how algorithms might look in five or so years, I, I would really start with the kind of competitive and the market landscape. I think right now, a lot of the algorithms that we talk about a lot are originating from some of these big platform companies, which, you know, in many cases are more or less monopolies. So there's, you know, sort of one or two algorithms that most people interface with that control the kind of videos that we watch or the kind of content that we consume. I could definitely imagine a scenario where, you know, if there winds up being a little bit more competition, that, you know, different platforms and different services begin to become differentiated by the, the sort of personality of their algorithm or the, the kind of algorithm that, that they have. I think you're seeing this a little bit in music where you see Spotify has a kind of different tone to their algorithm. They serve up different stuff than Apple Music, so to speak. I could see that kind of differentiation by algorithmic kind of tone or personality, you know, sweeping into a bunch of other industries. I could imagine a world where, you know, the algorithm doesn't really step out of the shadows. It doesn't become something that we can poke and prod and see and interact with and engage, where it sort of remains, you know, silently guiding our experiences. And I can imagine in a world like that, people you know, doing a lot more work to kind of hide their true selves, to sort of say one thing to the algorithm and, you know, think another, or really develop kind of distinct personalities with different kinds of accounts or different kinds of services. And in a way, it could become even harder for companies in that world to understand who the true person is. They may have to build an understanding of many different versions of Maria. I think in that world, there might also be some interesting players that come in promising to have algorithms that work in the service of the user. If the algorithms that users are encountering on platforms 
sort of stay in their corner of being purely in the service of the companies they're built in. That could be something that happens. Yeah, I think it is interesting. I mean, up until this point, I don't see many examples of companies that are marketing themselves based on their algorithm. You know, even a lot of the big content providers, they talk about the quality of their library or the kind of content that sits on their platform, not necessarily, hey, we make recommendations in this interesting way that's better than the others, or we allow you to kind of shape the kind of recommendations that you get in some, some way that's differentiated. Maria, Brendan, thanks so much for sharing your thoughts and experiences and for joining me on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you, Elliot. Pleasure is all mine, Elliot. Now, to delve deeper into the topic of algorithms, not just from a human and behavioural standpoint, but from a broader society and policy perspective, let's hear from Eleonora Mazzoli. She's a researcher in data, networks and society at the London School of Economics. Eleonora, welcome to the Phenomena podcast. Thank you very much for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. Eleonora, you know a lot about the current policy responses and innovations going on in technology and media. And my sense is that there's a lot going on. Why is there so much policy attention on these platforms? And I suppose the algorithms behind them today? Well, first of all, I think it's been in the making, let's say. I think after many years of, of growing pressure from the public, from researcher academics and, and human rights advocates, finally uh, democratic governments have acknowledged some of the issues that today's digital societies are, are raising and they've stepped out their games, let's say. So I think the issues raised, especially by algorithmic-driven content moderation and curation processes, are particularly pernicious due to the lack of transparency and public understanding of the processes. So especially in a period like today of polarization, mistrust, spread of disinformation online, the public needs clarity about how both private and public organizations can shape access to information and media content online. And these issues have been there for, for several years and they've been sort of public public outcries on a number of occasions. And I think in the past two to three years, government has started to realise and and also have taken up this political momentum to intervene and trying to shape for the better or for the greater good this digital society that are emerging. On to some of the specific topics raised by Maria and Brendan. Eleonora, what do you think of the idea that companies can build algorithms that improve the user experience based on an understanding of who they want to be, who they're trying to become, so more forward-looking approaches rather than just who they were, a more backwards-looking approach? Absolutely. I think what I would highlight, and that's also what I highlight in my work, is that we're dealing with rather complex socio-technical systems. So it's not just about the algorithm as a black box where you have inputs and outputs and a rather opaque process in between uh, through which the input data is then processed and, and served as a recommendation to the final users. But behind that, there are more complex system that needs to be taken into account and they also uh, can be used to improve these experiences in a way. And if there are a number of ideas and, and proposals that have been circulating both among uh, policymakers but also researcher and, and civil society organisations within as well the, the Digital Services Act context to improve some of the services in a way that they don't just focus on a very individualistic understanding of, of the single users or a very narrow algorithm-centrism 
approach and some of the ideas to improve this is to use a more creative approach in leveraging how users can actually engage with content uh, recommendation outputs in practice and introduce perhaps incentives or even if needed, obligation for platforms to enable users to choose perhaps between different recommendation algorithms. And the choice could be given on the same platforms or even offered by third parties. There are a number of civil society organizations, for instance, that have been campaigning to opening up the market uh, for algorithm and recommendation system. And of course, this would require interoperability between the services, but it could give the possibility to the users to choose between different optimization criteria. So one user might be happy to receive the same recommendation based on her or his own consumption habits. Others might be happy to input their own preferences, their own idea of themselves or what they would like to see. So they could then receive optimized and recommended suggestion based on that. Or another idea that has been sort of circulating, especially in the among public service media broadcaster, is this a uh, concept of the diversified algorithm, which optimizes based on, on diversity of exposure. So the idea that you like to expose the users to different types of content, not just what you've consumed before, but perhaps something that it's different and yet not too far. And there are a number of sort of mathematical formulas to do that based on distances that could expand the horizon of the users and also diversify its uh, information and media diet. Both of those ideas for improving the user experience of these platforms seem to engage with a slightly different model to what we see today, where it sounds like there are ideas to have people more actively engage with recommendations and choice versus what's today generally a fairly passive experience where things are served up for you. And your second idea feels like an attempt to stretch people away from familiar content, whereas today's model seems more about placing what is safely known to be appealing to them in front of them. So it sounds like quite a different model. Is that right? Yes, uh, they are quite different models. And they challenge, in a way, the dominant model of, of recommended system, especially in the in the media and, and information space. And this is why they are being proposed by organization they're not dominant player in the market for instance the the diversified algorithm is coming from public service media and some of the experiments of the the pitch the personalization for each project from the European Broadcasting Union whereas the idea of opening up the the market is coming from civil society organizations uh, they are trying to emphasize the user empowerment and the actual freedom of choice that you might give to the users. And then at the same time, they're not just ideas. They've been tested and they are being experimented. As I said, one has been implemented by uh, the European Broadcasting Union and some of the public service media like NPO in the Netherlands or Sverige Radio and its news value project in, in Sweden. But also this idea of the diversified recommendation, it's making its way into some of the dominant models. Um, Netflix, for instance, is trying to experiment and there are a couple of help pages in its uh, website that try and explain how they would like to expand users' viewing habits. And and technically it is uh, possible, but as you said, it's not mainstream yet, at least. But it's a possibility. As you watch both the user base and policy uh, place pressure on these technology companies to perhaps try a different approach, to try something new to evolve. Can I ask, 
in your experience, how do you see the major technology players in this space responding to this pressure? So from a very uh, simplistic perspective, the responses are, are very slow in a way. Some of the, especially some of the, the big tech companies that have rather established and successful business model, they are exactly based on this optimization logics that focuses on engagement, consumption, and therefore it's a feedback loop that uh, prioritizes this kind of criteria and making recommendation and suggestion and curating content based on past consumption habits is almost a safer choice, of course. Um, it would be one of the possibility to actually empower user and also give viable alternatives as well. If you want to break this cycle of clickbaits, news and dissemination of content that it's based exactly only on commercial logics, I think we need to have the possibility to implement alternatives. And then at the same time, it's a rather paternalistic approach, of course, because you are trying to impose different criteria as well to users. Even this idea of the diversified algorithm, uh, it's based on the assumption of the normative and sort of uh, assumption that diversity and media diversity are important, which I personally agree. But you might have to accept also that some users do not want that. But again, the opt-in, opt-out possibility, the opening up of the market are potentially viable solution, challenging, of course, and they will counter uh, resistance, but there is also support uh, from industry, civil society and policymakers as well. May I pose a question to you that I also asked of Maria and Brendan? If you look into the future, let's say five years out from now, how do you think this space will look different? How will companies be approaching algorithms differently? How might they be working differently? I would be hoping to see more true user empowerment and user choices with opt-in, opt-out, more active personalization rather than passive personalization. So what I'm hoping is that company would improve their systems and develop ethical and accountability frameworks within their own organization through multidisciplinary teams in their uh, research and development and innovation departments. I think having different expertise in, in these uh, departments would add an extra value, but also would add the knowledge and the insights on how algorithms are ultimately socio-technical systems, complex socio-technical systems, which therefore require not only a data scientist, but perhaps also an anthropologist an anthropologist, a social scientist, and um, a behavioral economist all together in one room in order to improve their recommendation and, and uses of algorithm in their organization for their own benefits, but also for, for broader societal benefits. Eleonora, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. And thanks to you all for listening to the Phenomena podcast from Red Associates. Mm-hmm.